Welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It has been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we're in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. It can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to, it's to have guests on and to talk about the games that we know and love, to talk about big industry events that are happening around the world, and to talk to the people that create these games. Now, if you've listened to this show at any point in time, you will know that I'm a big fan of a few games in particular. I mean, I love lots of games, but there are games that I come back to again and again and again and again. And today we get to talk to the author slash development team for one of my faves. And it is a cracker. It's got to be my birthday because we're talking to Carl from Crooked Dice. And when we're doing that, you know we're talking about 7TV. Carl, welcome back. Hello. Good morning. How are you? It is brutally hot in melbourne i'm sure you don't have that problem in the uk and it is a very hot sweltering evening here i'm sure you don't have that problem how are you doing man i'm okay well, it's uh gloves and scarves over here woolly hats so it's, uh, it's it's quite the opposite but yeah all good all good now carl you were on not too long ago and we were talking about the great game that is seven tv and some of the different additions it's gone through but tonight you're on to talk about something slightly different we're actually going to be speaking to some new folks uh and it's something that you mentioned the last time you were on and we're actually going to talk about the collaboration between crooked dice and edge hill university now if we're gonna ha start talking about that link of course we need to have the the big man himself the professor. And as a teacher myself, you know I was gonna I was gonna big this up. But Dr. Peter Wright, how are you? And welcome to Cast Eyes. I'm very well, thank you. And and thank you for welcoming me. It's great to be here. Well, I have about a thousand questions, but uh, from one teacher to another. But before we get down that rabbit hole, we're actually going down a completely new path for Cast Dice tonight, and we're actually going to talk to students of yours, uh, or collaborators, I guess is a better word, uh, as well. And we have two today. We have Matthew Taylor. Welcome, Matthew. Hello. And we have Sarah Hanks. Welcome. Hi. Now, you guys are all UK-based. Um, obviously, Edge Hill University is not too far from where Crooked Dice is based. Carl, are you going to correct me on that? Uh, it depends if you're talking Australian or US miles compared to UK <laughs> miles. It's, um, I don't know, what are we? We're opposite sides of the country and about a three hour drive, which I guess to you guys is, is probably nothing. Actually, yeah. yeah in Australian terms, eh, it's not so far away. But yeah, in, uh, in UK terms, I know that that means that you, that's further than you would probably drive for a party. I found that out once having a British roommate. <laughs> fact that I drove him to a party in Philadelphia, he was, yeah, didn't understand. Anyway, uh, let's talk a lot about what you guys have been up to. Now, Crooked Dice, uh, a couple years ago, if I'm getting my math right here, it was 2019, you began collaborating um, with Edge Hill University. They had their own university press, and they were putting out books like, uh, you know, narrative uh, storybooks, short story compilations, uh, books of poetry. But then maybe I should jump to Peter here. Peter, how did that develop? Because it, it changed, because you had a very innovative idea of wanting to do something a little different 
for this uh, university press? Yeah, I mean, my two colleagues, James Byrne and Roger Glass, started the university press in 2015. And the idea was that the press would work with outside publishers and every year they would publish uh, a single text and there would be a group of students interns working on each of those. Um, so there's about six or eight students working on each of those um, to give them industry experience. And the, the pattern of publication followed staff interests. So my colleagues who work on poetry worked on a poetry book. My colleagues who work on script writing worked on a book about um, uh, kind of oppositional drama and theatre. And I, I thought, well, I don't really want to write a book or edit a book on games because reading a book about games is a lot less fun than playing playing games. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I wonder, could we somehow d develop a game? And that followed having a chat with Carl at um, the 2017 UK Games Expo. And we just got talking, I, I was a, a customer of Carl's, and we just got talking about Edgar Rice Burroughs and Pulp, and we found that we had the shared interest. And I said, can I maybe write something for Crooked Dice and Carl? Yeah, of course, just send me a pitch. So I got home, started to think about it. I thought, I wonder if we could sort of do a collaboration between Crooked Dice and Edgehill University Press, but design a game based on the pulp serials of the 30s and 40s and the pulp fiction of that period. So I asked Rog and James at the press and they went, you're mad, um, but we'll support it. You know, uh, that, that'd be great. Nice. So I went back to Carl and said, I might have an idea, uh, but it depends on how you feel about working with us and, and working with the design team of, of students who, who not really designed games before. They'd done some of my modules about games design and games writing. Um, and Carl very kindly and uh, very trustingly went, yeah, let's, let's do it. Uh, so the university said yes. Carl said yes. And I went, oh, goodness, what have I done? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then we, we sort of recruited our, our, our first design team. And we worked for two years with two design teams. Some of the students overlapped. Uh, for two years and then we launched Pulp in, in 2019 at the UK Games Expo so it was a two-year project um, and it worked really well so we said why don't we do it again so so we did it again and here we are to talk about 7TV Fantasy now I'm going to get down that track in just a sec but um, first of all Peter, I have to ask the big question, where were you when I was in university? Because uh, some of us had to go through the Games Workshop internship slash, I, I would call it an internship because Games Workshop doesn't pay. Um, so it was kind of getting paid in Toy Soldiers for almost three years to get my, my uh, it was the school of hard knocks, as we used to say in uh, sales. But that's how I got into gaming. Uh, and as try as I might, I never got past the sales department. So um, the fact that you've actually, you know, created uh, not only courses, as you say, which, you know, revolve around narrative uh, writing and narrative gaming slash game design. I mean, that's amazing. How did you get a university to approve that? I mean, clearly you're a game yourself. I can see the game stacked behind you. Um, thank you oh. for that, by the way. It really helps. Uh, it beat me to my next question of, are you a gamer yourself? Obviously you are. I, um, I was really fortunate that Edge Hill is really supportive, often for really, <clears throat> excuse me, mad ideas. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, my program leader at the time in creative writing was Dan Pantano, who now, strangely enough, works at Lincoln, uh, University of Lincoln, not too far from Carl. Um, and I had a group of first year students and they'd done a little bit of role-playing game 
sort of theory in a module that I was teaching called Beyond Books, mm-hmm. uh, which is about narrative design. And they went, can we do a module on, on writing for role-playing games? And I went, well, there isn't one. Uh, and they said, oh, could you write one? I said, well, I don't know. There's university processes and all the rest of it to go through. So I went and mm-hmm. had a chat with Dan. And Dan said, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. Um, so I, it, it really did come out of the students saying, we're really interested in this kind of topic. Can we learn about it? Um, so we did writing for role-playing games in the second year. And then we did writing for digital adventure games in the third year. And then a couple of years later, I went back to the first year and we did introduction to writing for narrative games. So there's now a thread that runs through the creative writing degree uh, that other students can do. Um, one, of, one of the team is a history student this year. One of the team for Pulp was, um, was an English literature student. Mm-hmm. So they can, you know, it's open to all the students in the department, which is great. Um, and that's how it came about really. But my introduction to, to gaming was my English teacher at secondary school um, who showed up with this weird thing called Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. in about 1979 and we played Keep on the Borderlands um, and that was it really. So Classic. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm following the tradition of corruption of, of taking smart young people and saying hey let's play games you know um, so that, that's kind of that, that's kind of how it came about really. You're doing the good lord's work I think that's uh, a saying where I come from um, but it, it's not just that you're taking students and saying, here, here's something that I'm passionate about. You now need to be passionate for it as well. I mean, as you said, people need to sign up for it. But the program that actually turned into the design team uh, for 70, uh, 7TV Pulp and then 7TV TV Fantasy, goodness, that is a separate project. That's extracurricular. That is something that is actually a job that students had to actually apply for outside of the usual university process, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the objective with Edgehill University Press was to provide students with kind of industry experience, extracurricular industry experience, to give them a little bit of an edge when they graduate and to try and distinguish them from, you know, the thousands of other graduates who graduate every year in Britain. So the university was very, very keen on, um, on really trying to build or help our students build their futures uh, in addition to doing their studies as well. So every student that's worked on 7TV Pulp and 7TV Fantasy has taken this on yeah, as extra work um, and, and all credit to them for doing that because the amount of work involved is not, it's not light at any means as you mentioned, you know, 230 or profile cards and things like that. Um, so we try and manage the timetabling of, of the game's development in a way that allows our students or enables our students to carry on with their studies without it impacting too much. Now, Sarah and, uh, and Matthew might have a different perspective on that. I don't know. You can ask them about that. But we try. So by, you know, when the main sort of exam periods come along, December, May, things like that, the business of actually writing the game sort of slackens off and we quiet it all down. Um, and that that enables them to to carry on with their undergraduate studies without and postgraduate studies in, in Matthew's case um, it, without it interfering too much. Um, so we, we're, we're conscious of, of the need to make sure that our students are not overburdened and can still kind of do what what their main business is, which is studying and working for a degree. I have to say, I didn't get anything out of university, I don't think, other than the ability to write a paper, the ability to not sleep for long periods of time, and the ability to talk into a microphone for long periods of time, which in retrospect may have been useful. The fact that you're actually giving students this practical uh, experience, that that they not only have 
the interview experience. I'd never been to an interview before I walked into Games Workshop. And uh, that was the worst good cop, bad cop experience I'd ever had and probably still have ever had to this day. But but seriously, uh, to, to give students that, that practical experience, but then to actually have on your CV, uh, on your resume, when you leave university, that you've actually been part of a development team for a proper game that has been out in production that people can play you just can't get enough practical experience these days and you're actually giving people real life experience my hats off to you man it is it's amazing it was it's been interesting because when we started we really didn't know what the effects would be on our students when they graduated but the 7tv pulp team a couple of the students there have done really well and they were saying that when they went to their interview it was very much a case of oh well yeah you've got a degree that's great but but what's this weird 7TV pulp thing you've been mm -hmm. doing? And I think in some cases it derailed the interview in the sense that the interviewers went down that rabbit hole. They were just kind of, what have you been doing? What is this? What's it, what's it involved? And some of the students were being asked questions in interviews like, so have you ever been part of a, a formal business meeting where minutes were taken and things like that? And they could say yes, mm -hmm. uh, because it's a university project and because you know, what the university has oversight of what we're doing. We, we have formal business meetings and they're, they're agendered and they're minuted and records mm -hmm. are kept. Um, and then after we've done all that, we go away and have the design meetings and then we have some fun with, with that kind of thing. Um, but it did enable them to understand what a, a kind of formal meeting business environment was like, in addition to working closely as a team to develop, as you say, a product at the end of it that was marketed and, and is out there in the world. Now, I, I hope... Sorry, go ahead. Brad, I, no, no, you go ahead. I hope we've kind of always treated the uh, the students and the team as you know as a development team in there. It's been an extension of the kind of the, the, the crooked dice business as much as we could, mainly because I'm not smart enough to disassociate between the two. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's we've tried to kind of there's the first year is is, is kind of technical game design crunching of profiles and things. Mm -hmm. The second year, which Matthew's been more involved in, is 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 a little different. It's marketing, it's it's comms, which is kind of my background in there, and and, mm -hmm. and selling the game and those kind of arguably dull but kind of transferable skills, as Peter said, that you can kind of go into a meeting. So, oh no, I've done that. I've worked in teams. I've uh, I've developed a communications plan, a marketing plan. We kind of, that's all been part of kind of this year. Um, so, hopefully because a lot of the students are coming from a creative writing background, this second year gives them, allows them to kind of flex their muscles a little bit in that and try different types of writing as we're writing for, for the blog or kind of marketing copy or whatever it, whatever it might be. Um, and, and we as the customers get to, to reap the benefits of that. I've been enjoying the, the blog that you guys have put out because, I mean, this is a new product. I mean, I am a big fan of 7TV. You know, I have I own all three 7TB boxes that currently exist. I have SpyFi, I have Pulp, and I have Apocalypse. I just said that out of order. But um, now we have Fantasy coming. And as someone who absolutely knows and loves each of those boxes, has played them many times, um, my first thought was, Fantasy, hmm, how is it different? And the fact that you are answering that in a long form blog, uh, it has entry after entry where you're talking about both the inspirations that you have going into this, but also um, how the game differs from previous iterations of 7TV is, uh, and the fact that you're, again, giving that experience to students is great. 
yeah, we've got the opportunity to kind of do that this year. You know, uh, the blog gives us, as you say, we can talk about the, the meta background of it, the actual kind of nuts and bolts of the design decisions that we made. Um, and then just do like other fun stuff, like what's your favourite fantasy movie as well. Mm-hmm. We're trying to give a mix of different content uh, to both, you know, the, the you, the, the, the customer and the gamer, uh, but also allow the development team to kind of write different bits of material that they may not have kind of experienced before as well. Um, but the blogs are is, is really kind of great to be able to kind of get all that extra content out um, that sometimes just lives in the back of our heads and never doesn't get explained or um, is slightly behind the scenes. So we can draw back the curtain and show you the horror behind. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Well said, especially since you're just finishing a Cthulhu-esque uh, Kickstarter. Nicely done, by the way. Uh, and congratulations on funding in the first four hours, something like that? Uh, I, I, it's four minutes, I think, is it, it funded in. Um, I know there's a four uh, in there somewhere, and it was incredibly yeah, short. Yeah. So, um, yes. Flu. Congratulations. Well, let's. I, I have talked about 7TV, as I said, many, many times. But if, if people are just finding this episode and they're not clear, I mean, clearly we've been tiptoeing around it. And I've done this explanation way too many times. Uh, I'm sure you've done it more. So I'm going to throw it back at you, Carl. Explain 7TV in fewer words than I would, because you know me, I'd go on for 10 minutes. Oh, I like a waffle. That's a challenge. 7TV... Uh, is uh, at its heart, it's a skirmish game. It's a small skirmish mm-hmm. game for, let's say, eight to ten models, um, kind of per side. It's a you go, I go um, system mm-hmm. uh, for those uh, game designers out there. What probably makes it different than uh, other skirmish games is the conceit that you're actually kind of making a a, a TV show uh, or movie. Um, in the best kind of uh, action style uh, cinema that you you can imagine. So we take basic terms, hero, champion, uh, soldier, and and rework those as star, co-star, extras, Mm -hmm. your abilities and special effects. Um, Depending on the set that you use, you kind of have different kind of props and gadgets um, in there as well. So um, it's fast, it's fun, it doesn't take itself too too seriously mm-hmm. um in there. and it plays to kind of those action movie tropes um even from the way that we build the profiles uh, you're not playing you know a named character you're playing an archetype like mm-hmm. the flamboyant agent um which could be james bond or austin powers or jason bourne depending on the tone of the game that you want to play yeah so the the pitch we always kind of give is it's um if there's a tv show or film that you've wanted to kind of play on the tabletop, you'll be able to do it with with 7TV. It's a very flexible and open system um, for you to be able to kind of just have some fun skirmish games. And it is the ultimate sandbox game as well. Um, And I know I've heard you say this both on this podcast and others in the past. It is sort of the ultimate game for nostalgia because you can take anything that you've been passionate about and put it on the table. I've literally played Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles versus Zombies. Uh, I've played The Visitors from V uh, against the Yakuza. Um, I've played... 
a pulp game. I think the most recent pulp game was a group of American GIs being led by a few Chinese nationals to a, to a temple in far off uh, China during World War II to um, stop an ancient hopping uh, Chinese uh, vampire that had, you know, had, had taken over a group of Japanese soldiers and they had to rescue uh, the damsel in distress. I mean, Seven TV allows you to do all of that, and it's absolutely fantastic for it. Now, Matthew, I, I know we haven't talked to you students very much, but here it comes. I know that you have a bachelor's degree in film and TV, and as someone who has a very similar bachelor's, you gotta love this, right? I mean, this kind this is a game that slots right into your wheelhouse. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, when I first heard about the, the the work placement, that was one of the main things that made me want to apply for it because mm-hmm. I'm I'm quite I'm quite a, myself I'm quite a big fan of uh, the older kind of more 60s 70s 80s kind of TV mm-hmm. science fiction fantasy era. So it was really um it was really appealing to me. Nice. And uh, I also I I couldn't help but know that when I was reading your profile that you're a big uh, Lord of the Rings movie fan, uh, Return of the King, big one. Either that or Fellowship, I think. Because yeah. um, I, I, 2000 was really good as well. Mm-hmm. But for me, I think it's kind of the climax of that film that, that peaks it. Mm-hmm. But um, Return of the King has got some amazing battles, but Fellowship's kind of got the a nice, consistent journey, I think, the whole way through. So it's either one of, one of those two. It does, it does. And uh, I guess the big question is, Merry or Pippin? Going to put you on that spot. Don't worry, Sarah. You you have a tough question coming too, so just you wait. Well, that's reassuring. I tend to forget which one's which, honestly. (laughs) Honestly, I think most people do. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, Lord of the Rings fans, please don't come at me. Um, <laughs> that's okay. I Let me come right back to you, Matthew. Sarah, uh, now I know that you worked on quite a few of the profile cards over the last couple of years. You've been part of the 7TV uh, fantasy process uh, for quite a while. I know you worked on a bunch of the elemental cards and some of the yes. mount cards. Uh, now, you, you were instrumental in a, a cards creation uh, based on a movie, uh, speaking of television and movies called cgi abomination now i gotta know what was the abomination and where did that card come from oh god that's a can of worms um (laughs) sorry it's fine i i got assigned um my films last i think um got the bottom of the pile with that Mm mm-hmm so I ended up not with uh, The Hobbit or Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I ended up with a couple of films called um, Dragonstorm, I think it was. And I can't remember what the other one was called. Dragon something else, I think. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Dragonstorm, as far as I could tell, was pretty much... Dragons come from space in medieval England, and it's not nearly as cool as it sounds. <laughs> yes. You end up with these blobs of... CGI horror just sort of floating around. Occasionally there are fireballs that look like they've been MS painted in. Nice. Very nice. Some weird nights of sleep after that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we can definitely talk about movies like that in in a minute. Um, Well, uh, let's quickly jump back for a second. Uh, Carl, uh, or maybe Peter, one of you can field this. I understand that... um, 
the design team for Seven TV Fantasy had an easier go of it this time. Um, if only, I mean, keeping in mind that uh, mo- many members of the design team, uh, Sarah and Matthew included, are of, uh, how should I say, a younger generation than I. Um, and so when you start talking about circa, oh, I don't know, Flash Gordon serials, they might not know exactly what you're talking about. And so the homework might have been a lot harder for Pulp, would you say? I think, yeah, the Pulp design team had a lot harder time, I think, getting to grips with the source material. I mean, it's the Flash Gordon and the associated serials, they're, they're 80 years old. Their politics is are very different. The design oh, yeah. <laughs> is yes. cheap. Um, they're four, five hours long. You know, they run 12 to 15 episodes. And it took the design team, I think, for Pulp a long time to, to find the motivation to sit down and watch, you know, the five or six of these things and, and sort of distill out what they needed. Um, I think the fantasy design team, with the exception of Sarah, who clearly was, was earmarked for the, for the dross that I could find. That's not true at all. Um, You're actually jumping ahead to my next question, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, most of them, the longest films, I think, really, are probably the Lord of the Rings films. Most yeah. of them run 90 minutes to two hours. That's not yeah. too bad. Uh, almost all of them are in colour. Um, and about the oldest ones we looked at were, were probably the Ray Harryhausen sort of dynamation kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, where everything else really kicks off in the, the sort of late 70s. And, and, you know, you've got Conan and Sword and Sorcerer and Beastmaster. And then it gets, you know progressively bigger and wider as we, we go on after that. So they probably did have a little bit of an easier time this time around. We certainly got through the research phase much, much quicker yeah. than we did with Pulp. I mean, I think Pulp research phase took about four months and a lot of kind of, have you done it yet? Uh, and smiling and being reassuring and encouraging. Um, <laughs> whereas the fantasy design team, we've gone, oh, it's done. Have you, got, have you got anything else for me to watch? And it's like, funny you should mention that. I've got Dragonstorm here. Um, <laughs> So, um, so that was quite fun. Um, and I think, yeah, possibly a little bit. An easy time in some ways, less easy in terms of how it was organised. Pulp organises itself into genres. The it pulp does. period is really where we see modern genres emerge that we still recognise now. Fantasy is not that clean cut. No. I don't think you can recognise a space serial and a crime serial and a superhero serial. Mm-hmm. Fantasy movies less less distinguishable i think from one another now carl i am going to come right back to you and talk to you talk to you exactly about the genres but just to circle back sarah did it feel easy that's the question i have to ask you after he fin- peter finished i mean the skip button on my laptop definitely came in handy <laughs> right on <laughs> All right, on. Uh, and Matthew, I have to ask, uh, what was your homework if uh, if Sarah had to watch, uh, you know, some of the CGI abomination? Well, just to answer your previous question, I'd probably say Pippin. Um, nice. Answering your current one, uh, <laughs> because um, because I've kind of come in at the kind of end portion of the of the development phase. Yeah. Um, I've not really had to research anything specific. I kind of just had to call on my pre-existing knowledge mm-hmm. of the fantasy genre really so not, not too much homework nice now uh i i have read your bio i do uh, i do know that you uh identify as uh, a lover of fantasy and um one of us as far as uh the nerd folk goes um and i mean that lovingly and respectfully of course um my question is are you a gamer 
Oh, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So uh, when, when you saw this, you, you knew what gaming was, you, you had, you were aware of it and what it entailed. Uh, yeah, I never really played, um, war games before, mm-hmm. but uh, a few years ago I started getting into Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. Call of Cthulhu, and, uh, most recently Mutants and Masterminds. So nice. really more to role-playing stuff. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. Tabletop games of one variety or another, man. They're, it's all the same family. Uh, yeah. And I guess that that Sarah, back to you. Are you have you played games? Are you gaming in any gamey in any way, shape, form? Yeah, I mean, I think it was definitely the case that I'd always wanted to get into Dungeons and Dragons, the tabletop games, but I'd never had anyone to play with. So it's the classic story. And then mm-hmm. I come to uni, and suddenly I'm surrounded by nerds. Hello, Peter. Yes. Um, I can say that's just the staff. <laughs> Yep. Nice. Okay. Well, there. You, well, and now that you have had time, uh, and I, I do understand that uh, part of your coursework was um, sort of mastering Seven uh, TV version two, which is the version that we're all talking about here. Um, now that you've been playing a game, what do you think? A lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Nice. Nice. Uh, and do you have a particular version of the game that you enjoy most? Uh, or am I just feeding fantasy to the person who wrote it? No, I, I definitely love fantasy. All right. I right think on. if we'd actually had a chance to meet up in person, we would have been playing it nonstop. Because, I mean, we're all creative writing students, and just the potential for storytelling is amazing. Nice. Nice. Well, I am going to come back to your favorite characters in a second. And you too, Matthew. Well, let's talk about some of the genres that are in this game. Now, we did sort of talk about how, uh, you know, crime fighting or rocketeer or uh, even, you know, spies versus villains versus science versus crime in some of the other iterations of the game. But fantasy, I mean, fantasy is a fairly wide umbrella, but it's also an umbrella that doesn't usually divvy itself up too much. I mean, we do have sort of sword and sorcery versus um, more historical fantasy. Uh, and I know that's in your genres, but can you talk specifically, Carl, about the genres that make seven TV, sorry, the genres within, um, because both the missions that you play and sort of the casts, which is the war band um, that you create are all sort of themed around one of those six genres. Yeah, um, yeah, genres are essentially a way of sort of organising your cast or, or warband, as you say. So the the genre that your star or co-star has, that means they can pick extras, so the troops, from those genres. So mechanically, it's a way of theming and balancing, you know, some of the, some of the casts. Um, so what we do is a really early stage of any of the design process is trying to figure out kind of what those different groups are and come up with a nice kind of big Venn diagram of, of where they where they all overlap um but as Peter mentioned earlier and you alluded to it's with the other games it's been a little easier fantasy is it it mixes and matches different kind of styles even within you know Lord of the Rings has got Tom Bombadil in it what's going mm-hmm. on there um, <laughs> yeah so um so they mix and match. There's some that are easily more easily identifiable, but I think the design process at the beginning is, I, I quite like that part of it when you're doing it, kind of sitting back and categorizing. I get great joy from that generally in life. Um, and 
I, I might even throw this back to the to the team a little bit there just to see how they kind of they they found that kind of digging them out we ended up with six there were probably there were almost seven um in there we had science fantasy at one point but when we're kind of doing the checks um we kind of realized well there's a few of things in science fantasy but possibly not really enough that we need to be able to spread it across what we ended up with kind of like 230 profiles really it didn't yeah. quite fit uh urban fantasy was another one which brings it into modern day mm -hmm. then you need a whole other set of kind of mechanics for modern weapons and other things there so we decided to kind of park that um but we ended up with uh, epic fantasy which is your kind of classic saga lord of the rings style um uh, adventures mm -hmm. folk tale which was fairy tale um uh stuff in that legend would probably fit quite nicely into that any brothers grim mm -hmm. uh, kind of work there we which is fantasy right i mean it's it's one of those things that i never would have thought to include that in a tabletop game and yet so much of what we know about fantasy comes from fairy tales absolutely absolutely and it's a rich vein to be mined in that and particularly archetypes yeah uh, you know Mm -hmm. um the wicked region or you know uh, the uh, the valiant royal and those kind of uh, um characters in there dominate that possibly kind of more than any other so um so folktale was great it was nice to get that uh that side of things in we managed to divide out into historical fantasy in there so this is where it's your magic is a little bit more kind of lo-fi mm -hmm. really um so arthurian legends beowulf robin hood that those kind of characters in there and divided those off mythic fantasy probably played more back into the ray harry Housen um seventh voyage which is kind of where a lot of this kind of started off from so that is any of your pantheon of kind of uh heroes in there whether they're greek or norse um they fitted quite nicely into 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 that mm -hmm. sword and sorcery was probably the most obvious one in there because that that's conan and robert e howard and where it's it's the most pulpy which is where a lot of the seven tv games have their roots really mm -hmm. uh in there so that one that one was quite an easy one to identify and then the the one that's probably the most unusual compared to our other games is pen and paper fantasy I maybe push this a little bit more than uh, th than I have done in, in the past. Mm -hmm. um, I think because so many of us came into fantasy, it was the gateway drug um, into, into the hobby um, in there. And certainly my interest on it came from playing D&D. &D, and I think that side of things has fed back into the cinematic world mm -hmm. that we've got as well. Um, and there's such a rich vein of different monsters and peculiarities in that uh, and also how that kind of links in to quite clunky isn't the right word but things like magic items yeah you know that's a real DD &D thing but it's core to our gadgets and how our kind of our our magic item things work so it was an easy way to kind of feed that in as well i think so pen and paper is our is the sixth um is the sixth genre but that's allowed us to that's probably what swelled the 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 profile cards to 230 because there's so many of those good weird monsters that you want to try and capture that kind of that expanded that quite quite considerably really exactly i mean there are just so many iconic 
monsters that we think of uh, that you know came exactly from pen and paper games that we just you know as gamers naturally expect to be in fantasy games these days in many cases were mined by games workshop and put on the tabletop maybe by them or others later but you know the expectation came and from you know gary gygax's work um yeah it's uh, i love that they have those that you have those six genres and there are um, links that you know, I can you can just think back to all the different fantasy elements, uh, and they all touch there. But what what makes this different from other iterations of Seven TV is that you go beyond that with the genres in this game, and I guess you did do it to a degree with the pulp. Um, but I feel like this ha- is more explicit um, with the introduction of the encounter guide. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how that came into being? Because, uh, I mean, there were guides in some of the other, I mean, it was included, um, but less explicit, I would say, um, in some of the other versions of seven TV, but with the encounter guide, you were very specific about in this place, you might have an encounter where these things happen. And in this place, you might have. Uh, an encounter where these things happen and there's tables you can roll on uh, and different effects that when you grab objectives, different things happen. Um, But of course, all of those tie directly to the genres that you're playing. Now, of course, you can play out of genre, but playing within the genre as well, just everything lines up beautifully. Um, How did that come into being? Because that is something that is new for 7TV. Peter, do you want to talk about it? Yeah, I mean, they, it grows out of the, the perils we did for Pulp Callum France. We, exactly. we were a little bit ahead of ourselves with Pulp towards the end. Uh, um, one of our interns who'd been working with us for two years, um, Callum France, who actually sort of wrote and directed the uh, How to Play 7TV Pulp, which is available on YouTube. Mm-hmm. He said, why don't we think about perils, sort of introducing a little bit more danger a little bit more unpredictability to games and he came up with probably 18 or 20 perils um, that we we revised and expanded and when we came to write um 7tv fantasy we thought okay well perils doesn't feel quite right for for fantasy so we thought about sort of how how we would phrase it how we'd name it and we came up with the the sort of encounters which was a nice nod i think back to dnd um, with you know, the wilderness encounters and things like that, um, and then we thought, okay, what are what can we what can we produce? What can we write that captures all the different kind of encounters, or not all the all the kind, but as many different kinds of encounters as we could in fantasy? So we've got things ranging from from slightly comic. So we've got the tavern crawl mm-hmm. encounter. Um, so glad you did that. Yeah, I think we, we owe a debt of thanks to, to Carl. That was that was one of Carl's suggestions, if I remember rightly. Um, but then we've got obvious things like the battlefield, mm-hmm. um, burial mounds, which just, I'm afraid, just reflects my interest in Conan the Barbarian more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, dragon fire, so a, a little bit better than, than Sarah's experience with dragons, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, sort of storms of chaos, which for me is a quite a nice nod to Michael Moorcock's Elric stories and, mm-hmm. and Coram and things like that. Um, and then sort of we've got a temple of essential evil, which is a dreadful pun, uh, but yes. you've got to do it sometimes. Yeah, the, yes. yeah Carl's responsible for that too. Uh, <laughs> and then sort of encounters with trader caravans 
and wizards' towers and sort of wilderness encounters as well. So it was really a way of, of carrying on the unpredictable nature of perils, but in, in a much more kind of concrete fantasy yeah. environment. Then we, we recommended which ones worked best in which genres. Of course, people can people can play what they like, really. Exactly. It's a really good way of getting that extra tone in. Because mm -hmm. it's a skirmish game, because we're trying to get everything on the back of you know, a small profile card sometimes, the opportunity is to try and get that fantasy tone in. We, we will we'll jump out as much as possible. Um, and all of those encounters, are, I think it lends itself probably, in my mind, slightly easier to, to, to the kind of fantasy genre, because there are those locales and environmental hazards which are really kind of familiar. We've got the, you know, the, the Thieves' Gauntlet um, and things like that, which we can't really reflect that um, in a profile. We've got six basic kind of battle formats, which is just, this is where you set up in a standard way and these are the objectives and where you've got to go to. Um, and they're great, uh, but they are generic and they cover a huge amount of ground. Yeah. Uh, the encounters allow you an extra level of specificity. Um, and we really just put it into another book because I, I ludicrously tried to get us to fit it on like, single cards before and we're really pushing it up with the content so we, <laughs> we, yeah. we could expand a little bit into a new there's a 24 page book in there uh no slightly longer than that it's 24 encounters in a 32 page book i think yeah. um so it's got that and some basic ai mechanics in there for wandering monsters which are mm -hmm. absolutely kind of essential um in there as well uh, but the monsters so, yeah. are predetermined um it is it you you actually pull uh profile cards out of the deck um, for each of the encounters, they have their own monsters and you sort of shuffle it up. And uh, so the things that you encounter are specific to that encounter. So you're not going to run into something that, that doesn't make sense, so to speak. Um, of course, as you say, do what you like. And if you want to put a red dragon in there, you can. Feel free. Yeah, yeah it's just enough. Uh, the, the Deathly Marches has got, you know, Wizard Men and, mm -hmm. and Swan Creek kind of thing in there. So it. Again, it just allows us to, to theme stuff just to hark back to that kind of nostalgia and the games or, or films that people have uh, you know and love, really. Yeah, and I think, as with most things with Peter, it was at least somewhat inspired by Skyrim. There is nothing wrong with that. My, my hat off to you, Peter. I was playing it last night. So, Peter, how many different uh, formats do you own of Skyrim? I'm currently on three. <laughs> I have it for three consoles. How about yourself? I just have the one. Just the one. Uh, yeah, I'm just a beginner, really, with it. Uh, so 200 hours, then, if you're just a beginner? Uh, at least, at uh, yeah. <laughs> I haven't played for ages, actually, but, um, yeah, it's something that's quite nice to escape to. I'm, I'm probably still really in love with Morrowind, though. I think Morrowind's probably my favorite role-playing game nice well i do i still do have a conan question that we're going to come back to but uh let's get back to 7tv let's let, let's let's talk about some of the mechanics that we know and love from 7tv now 7tv unlike a lot of games where you might have a fixed turn limit where you'll have play this game for six turns or play this turn game for five turns um and then roll for a possible sixth 7tv goes a very different direction you have act cards now they're called different things in every set 
Um, but just like you would have in a movie or in a play or in a television show, you have act one of the story, act two and act three. And there are uh, a stack of cards for each one of those. Now, depending on the size of the game, you pull out the, the correct number of act cards. So if you're playing a smaller game, you have fewer act cards for act one. And so you have, you know, a certain number for one, uh, act one, two and three, and you shuffle them up within Act one within Act two and within Act three. So if you're playing a small game, you might have a total of 15 cards, five of each. Um, if you're playing a larger game, you'll have more. And so the larger the game, the longer it will go. Um, but uh, every time you turn one over, something spectacular happens. Um, you know, there's a pyrotechnics uh, mistake, and that means that you get to blow something up. Or, um, you know, somebody falls in love with one of the characters, and so you move one character towards another one. By the way, I played a Star Wars thing recently where Boba Fett got dragged over to a random uh, rebel trooper because he fell in love, thanks to you, Carl. Um, True story. Boba Fett was not (laughs) impressed with that. Um, But... uh, as the act cards go through, Act One's cards, um, yeah, they they help you move around. Act Two, things get a little more dramatic, and then Act Three, the truly wild comes out as the game wraps up. And once you run out of cards, the game ends. This is the same thing with Seven TV Fantasy. However, they are now called trilogy cards. And the the things that are happening are still as uh, amazing and uh, hilarious on the tabletop, but they are more fantasy themed. Carl, are you happy with the way I explain that? Yeah, no, absolutely. We had events cards in um, first edition, and they were the real they were the real fun kind of part of it. Um, when we came to second edition, we realised that actually we could build that in to the just into into a simple turn turn mechanic. Um, but most importantly, that's where we could get this meta theme that you're making a TV show. Yeah. So all of those are production themes um, in there. There was a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth to get the right term for fantasy in there because there's, mm. there's kind of a, a literary element uh, as well as the kind of the, the the movie part of it. But we ended up with with trilogy in the end, um, and uh, and and kept the acts because that, that seemed to fit in with you know some of the the classic fantasy. Uh, threesomes that uh that we know and love That's so right. um but yeah what the, the I, honestly i think this was one of the easiest assignments for the team i think there were loads and loads of ideas that that came out peter might be disagreeing um with i was me. gonna say but the we, students are cringing i'm not sure about that <laughs> certainly from what i saw with the amount of ideas that we had for naming them yeah in there that this is the good thing about fantasy is that a lot of the team had that shorthand already, um, and we could. Uh, it, it felt like there were countless ideas for uh, for naming the uh, naming the cards. Brilliant. Well, let, let's. I mean, I believe it was Peter mentioned earlier, or it might have been yourself, Carl. Um, you mentioned that instead of gadget cards in this edition, um, because of course with SpyFi, you know, you wouldn't have James Bond without gadgets. Uh, or even Austin Powers, for example. Um, and so certain characters can have pull a random card from the gadget deck, uh, and then they can use it in the course of the game. Of course, Pulp had that with a different name. Uh, Apocalypse also. Now, again, we have those cards, except now they're called 
artifact cards. And um, of course, you're not going to have uh, the jetpack or the exploding pen in 7TV Fantasy. Um, you have gadgets or artifacts in this case that line up uh, with the genre and what you would expect in a fantasy movie. Um, were there any uh, personal favorites for, and this goes for all of you, uh, anyone have a personal favorite artifact, uh, in the game that they would like to share with the audience? Uh, Carl, I will start with you. Oh, sorry, Sarah, you sound like, sounds like you're ready. Go ahead. I was going to say, you can't go wrong with Excalibur. Yeah, exactly. Right. Although we didn't end up calling it that, did we? I see. I still mix up. We've got artifacts, and then we've got twenty MacGuffins as yes. well, which are our big things. And I'm still mixing those up. But there's um, the the artifacts are kind of smaller items, like the the poisoned apple um, mm. uh, for kind of folk tale in there. But there's um, there's lots. I'll, I'll, I'll bring them up now as just a little reminder of uh, of what we've got. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure if Excalibur, which one it is, Sarah, um, but it could definitely be a gadget. But Excalibur is pretty epic, right? We, yeah. We kept, yeah, I was going to say, just to say to, to Sarah, that we did keep the name, actually, because um, I know we we had a lot of long design. Because there were so many great suggestions yeah. from the team, we spent a long time thinking about which ones were going to go forward for development. I do remember there were some some epic meetings that Matthew fortunately missed actually because he wasn't part of the team then so you, you got to sit those out which was great but i'm sure sarah remembers the five o'clock six o'clock yeah the five hour meetings <laughs> pretty much yeah i mean yeah i can i can run off a run off a few titles for out for artifacts so um they're probably more familiar to kind of I would say maybe a, a kind of a D&D audience in it, but yeah, Amulet of Protection, Bottle Lightning, the Crystal Shard, Elven Waybread. You mm-hmm. know, there's there's about 20 chapters dedicated to that in, in that particular novel. Mm-hmm. Um, the Enchanted Hourglass, Flying Carpet, the Holy Hand Grenade, obviously. Obviously. Uh, Magic Compass and Mandrake Root. So there's, they're kind of, their artifact cards, much like gadgets, are kind of just one-off buffs, basically, that add a lot of fun and kind of tone to the games i mean they give you kind of a one-off benefit Uh, mcguffins tend to be a little bit more powerful but Um, the mcguffins you don't start with they're they're special objectives that you actually have to achieve so you're actually there's it's like a quest on the tabletop you need to achieve it before you can use excalibur if that is one or i'm not sure i i'm trying to remember what the mcguffins are uh i'm I'm thinking the ark of covenant but the that's uh 7tv pulp so, so the MacGuffins, we've got things like Damascus Steel um, in their Davy Jones's chest. Yes, uh, that's uh, what I was thinking of. Tail, uh, shield, um, Elf Stones. Uh, there is Excalibur uh, in there as well. The Eye of Set, the Glaive, uh, Golden Fleece, uh, the Holy Grail, um, Hydra's Teeth. It, it's a uh, magic lamp. It, it's you know, it's the it's the iconic um, yeah. item or object. Uh, that is normally central to the central to the plot, so they 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 have a little bit more um, heft to them uh, once you get a hold of them in there. But as you say, they're, they're often the the key objective. Yeah. And um, to get in any game. Well, Matthew, I did promise that I'd come to you. Uh, what is your favorite object, be it MacGuffin or uh, artifact? Well, I think um, Sarah Sarah's choice of Excalibur was quite quite a good one because there's something very classic about about Excalibur itself. Yeah. 
But uh, me personally, I'd probably go with the glaive, mostly because it's just a fun word to say. Can't argue with that, right? The rule of cool. Uh, Peter, I feel like um, my father's sword or the amulet of set should have been in there somewhere. Um, where's it, Where do you lie in the Conan spectrum? I think for me, it's the rune sword, uh, which okay. is one of the MacGuffins. Um, I, I don't think I ever recovered from reading the Elric books when I was about 12. Yeah. Um, and I just thought the idea of a kind of living sword um, with mind of its own eventually betraying its uh, its its wielder was quite a cool idea so yeah that's my favorite nice very nice great choice now i did say i'd come back to you and i've been talking about this forever i'll put you out of your misery um what's your favorite conan story do you know it's probably the tower of the elephant so it's good like right classic story. yeah i love that one it's an early story um but it, it it's just a perfectly written um, I don't think uh, I don't think Howard's style was ever any better than it is in that sort of opening paragraph or opening couple of paragraphs where he sets the context beautifully, captures the, the kind of high boring it perfectly. Um, and then it has a, a really kind of interesting, heartfelt, unusual story about being trapped and being punished and and and, and Conan as this kind of liberating force. Um, that, that challenges civilization and brings that kind of different barbarian perspective that Howard does just doesn't define in the same way as other people have defined barbarianism. Exactly. Um, yeah, and, and I think when you see the film adaptation, which the, the sort of Tower of Set borrows so much from, it does. Um, where, where they get the eye of the serpent. Uh, yeah, it's that. I think that's my favorite story by far. It's the one I go back to and reread fairly often, actually. Yeah, it's funny you say that, um, mentioning the parallel to the set, because every time I read it, I expect Conan, Conan to punch out a, a camel, but it just never does. <sighs> the, the amount of um, world building in that story is quite impressive as well. Like it's how much he's kind of hinted at pretty, um, the alien elephant, I can't remember the name of, but it expands the universe so much. It does. It feels almost Lovecraftian too, in, in that it's looking at the, you know, the great beyond. Uh, well, let's let's talk about some of the character cards. Now, I say character cards, profile cards. Uh, in Seven TV, you have, as has been mentioned, you have your you have your star, the the leader of your cast, and they may be accompanied by a couple of co stars, and then you have a bunch of extras. Uh, you know the 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 porters who are carrying things, or the, you know, the random guards who are backing up Conan the King uh, as he's defending against the assassins and the evil sorcerer who are invading his, his palace, for example. Um, but in this case, we have 230 profile cards. Now, of course, we have our dashing heroes, and we have our evil tyrant kings, there's a million shades of everything in between, not to mention all sorts of creatures, your, your undead skeletons, your zombies, your ghouls, um, your goblins, your orcs, um, your elves. I mean, I could go on for days. I literally was flipping through just the list of the names of these cards saying, I have one of those painted. I have one of those painted. I have one of those. I need to paint it. It's unbelievable how many, uh, classic creatures slash character types you've crammed into this box. Um, I guess 
uh, how did that list get so big? Um, is it is is it uh, symptomatic of it being a team project and everyone wanting to get their favorites in? Carl, you did mention pen and paper earlier. Um, Sarah, I know you worked on a lot of the profiles. Um, yes. How how did that process work? Um, I know you know I know Carl's been writing profiles for this game forever um, in a good way. Um, and I know Peter was involved with Pulp. How was it for you to come in and be a part of this massive undertaking of 230 profile cards? See, it sounds like a lot, but the team's massive. So I think everybody contributed quite a few because we went through the films that we watched, tried to put most characters into archetypes. And then, you know, we still ended up with far too many. We had to cut it down. Um, I can't remember the original number. Closer to three hundred, I think. Oof. Um, yeah, there's yeah, a. Bit, we, I, I was going to say it was one of those projects where we didn't start out to to do two hundred and thirty, two hundred and forty profiles. That that wasn't the objective. Um, yeah. <laughs> that just scare everybody. Um, but then we ended up with about as Sarah said, about three hundred, and then we thought, okay, so how do we get it back to something manageable? Um, and that involved the team going back to Carl and saying, okay, so what is manageable? What, you know, what isn't going to make the, the box set weigh, you know, 14 pound or something to, to get through the post. But, yes. Um, so yeah, um, but that's where we kind of ended up. Um, but as Sarah was quite rightly saying, it just kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that came from uh, Sarah's and, and the team's enthusiasm now peter or possibly carl i own and have played pulp several times um many times and i'm a big fan i remember that box arriving and it being heavy which is saying something in wargaming's terms because it's a full-size box and there's no models in it it's literally profile cards um all the objectives all the templates that you need to play and you know uh, all the books now this is even more. I mean, what roughly how many profiles were there in Pulp? I wanted to say 180, but I think I'm totally making that number up. Yeah, I think you're right. It's about 180. About in that ballpark. Um, so we're yeah. talking, you know, an extra 50. Um, now I know for Pulp, uh, Carl, you you came out with an additional set of profiles later. Um, basically everything that hit the the cutting room floor as far as all of the monsters and animals. Uh, was it at the Menagerie of Terror? Am I making up that name? Yeah. Um, are you anticipating that perhaps some of the fantasy profiles that hit the cutting room floor might appear later, maybe in one of the scenario packs that you're talking about moving forward with, with 7TV going into the future? Or are you saving some of those for up your sleeve for possibly 1980s, if we're talking uh, science and fantasy? Not that I want to see Masters of the Universe or Thundercats. I'm just saying. Um, uh, nothing's ever wasted. Let's put it that way. Brilliant. Um, there are at least... Once we'd gone through, because the team were allocated 20 or so each, maybe around that number. Um, and then Peter and I had sat down over the summer and kind of reviewed them. And I think we trimmed it down a little more. There's about 20 or so on sitting on the side. Uh, we're going to reuse some of those um, in the next couple of months as preview cards. Brilliant. 
to, to show to people in the in the marketing work. Um, other things where they're particularly themed will probably go into kind of future feature packs, um, which will be uh, something that we'll be developing a, a little more uh, as a kind of a new product line off, off the back of fantasy as well. Um, so yeah, nothing's going to get get wasted. But there were a few things like bugbears didn't make the cut, but we were, we've got cards for those and, uh, and and a few other dungeon vermin things that didn't quite make the cut. Um, so they're coming soon. I know I'm sitting in a shadow and you can't see, and the listeners clearly can't see the giant grin on my face when you say the word bugbear, but you know, it, it, it warms my heart. Uh, Matthew, you gotta love that, right? As a D and D man. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's one of my favorite races to play actually. Nice. Very nice. So, um, Matthew, what, I know you came in after the, uh, profile process, um, so for you, um, when because you're helping to write a lot of the copy and a lot of uh, you know the, the the blog posts and a lot of the the press that is going out and some of the stories uh, in the box as well, um, how useful was it to have all of that laid out? Um, do you think it would have been um, you do you ever have that little feeling in the back of your head? God, I wish I was here to write some of these um, because I really wish there would have been more hobbits. Well, um, I actually was given the opportunity to, to write a few profile cards um, right. just, just to get the experience for it. Uh, they were part of the evil adventuring party set and they were kind of um, villainous extras, kind of like henchmen with like, not the best survivability, mm. but um, it was quite fun because uh, I worked with uh, Dan Cliff, who's, who's been part of the project for a, for a while now. Mm -hmm. So he was, we were basically collaborating and just coming up with different ideas. But um but going to the question, uh, it was quite nice having everything kind of laid out for us because it, it kind of let us focus more on kind of developing the studio history and focusing on what would be the best way to kind of market it and uh, in in a best in a way that would uh, work for Minerva Studios the best, basically. Nice. And what else have you been working on as far as this project? I mean, I know very generally you've been working on you know some of the the blog posts and the copy. Um, but what, what's really been the, the part of this project that you've enjoyed working on most? Well, I'd probably say the profile cards, to be honest. Um, in general, what I've been working on is, uh, the marketing stuff. So for that, I did uh, a fake script, which is for one of the, one of the films that our figures are based on. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also working on some, some polls for the Facebook page, uh, as well as an, an interview with one of our um with one of our studios uh developers the makeup artist i think um but yeah i'd say in terms of sheer creative enjoyment uh it was probably the evil adventuring party cards and the the fake script that i enjoyed doing the most nice yeah i always enjoy reading those scripts because uh yeah uh, the just just so much uh, creativity to those the pulp ones in particular had me laughing i haven't had a chance to to dig into the fantasy ones yet but you know i'm gonna sarah i guess i'm gonna throw you the same question i know you did a lot of work on the profile cards what 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 was your favorite part of this process because you've been working on this for years now oh yeah See, it's weird because of COVID, it doesn't feel like two years. Um, True. And I definitely feel like Matthew missed out on a lot of the stuff that being face-to-face -face lets you do. Um, 
I guess really writing the little um, the little descriptions on each profile card. I remember I had a lot of fun with um, uh, well, villains are obviously the most fun to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do remember originally I had a plan for the elementals where if they were in beta contact with each other, they could have different effects depending on which elemental it was, but that didn't end up panning out because it would have been too complicated, I think. Yeah, you got to fit all um, that on those little cards, right? Yeah, yeah. Peter, I guess this is your second time around. I mean, Pulp was a, I mean, was a raging success. The, the product that came out was a brilliant game. Um, and now you're back at it a second time. Although, uh, as Sarah just alluded to, we, this is the age of COVID. And so collaboration is different now. Now that you've done this a second time, how does it feel? Um, did did you did you learn lessons the first time around that you were able to really carry into the second project, or did um, you know the fact that communication became more difficult has this made uh, has this made it a, just a different process? What what are your takeaways? I think when when we started to move into lockdown in the UK, which was what March two thousand and twenty. Mm. Um, we realized that if we we're going to ever finish the project, we need to work differently. Um, one of the things we lost was the, the play testing time. So we actually had the game play tested uh, by, by seven TV fans. So we, we actually got people outside of the group to play test what we'd done. And I think that was, that was a positive thing rather than team play testing its own products. So I think sometimes you can overlook uh, things you've missed where play t- other play testers that aren't involved in the design will be much more precise in what they're doing. Um, but it enabled us to move online and we started to use uh, the, the university's collaborate um, format and then we moved on to Zoom. And it meant that we could carry on working. I don't know whether the design team were happy about this or not, but it meant that <laughs> yeah. we, didn't, we didn't pause at the end of the academic year, which is kind of the end of May, beginning of June and didn't pick up then again till the beginning of October when the new academic year started. We just carried on working right the way through. So there has been a lot more developmental time invested mm. in 7TV fantasy, which is a good thing actually, because it's, it's bigger, it's quite significantly bigger than, than Pulp. Um, but it has enabled us to meet more often uh, and more regularly, I think, mm. right the way across the, the development period. It's also meant that Carl has been able to be right at the, the heart of, of the design work where, I mean, Carl was busy with, with Apocalypse while we were writing Pulp as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Carl was saying, it's, it's a three hour drive from, uh, from Crooked Dice to Edge Hill. Um, now we're used to doing everything with Zoom and what have you. Um, it, it's meant that the design team can come together really efficiently and really effectively. But we've lost that ability to, to sit around and actually play the game um, and that's been a real shame, really. Mm. I don't think the game has suffered for it at all. I think it's benefited by having that, that external playtesting going on. But I think the, the, stu- the, the, the kind of design teams missed out just be, having the opportunity to meet, to chat, to sit around and pass ideas backwards and forwards. When we first started sort of back last, um, what, 2019, so o- October 2019, we sat around and we brainstormed things that Sarah was saying actually sometimes for five hours. Um, but you know, that brainstorming, that creativity, when you get 16 people in a room, just concentrating on how to name um, artifacts or how to name MacGuffins 
you get quite a lot of energy and creativity and people bounce ideas off one another. It's a little bit less creative, I think, working on Zoom. So it's quite useful that a lot of the design work had been done. Yeah. As we moved into that first lockdown, we had good drafts of the profile cards and the artifact cards and the, uh, the trilogy cards. And that enabled Carl and I to work on those over the summer while we were continuing to develop with the team as well when we met probably every other week. Uh, so it's had its benefits. I don't think any of us would ever say this is a, a preferable way of working, not at all. Right. Um, but it's had its benefits and it's enabled us to do things very, very efficiently. Um, exactly. And I've not really thought about working remotely before all my kind of game design work that I've done remotely has been by email. Once we all got used to working on Zoom and what have you, then it does actually make things look quite a lot easier. It makes it more collegiate, I think. It does. Uh, Carl, has that been your experience? I mean, this is your fourth time. I mean, you're past the trilogy at this point. Yeah, no, I, I would completely agree with um, with Peter. Uh, it's I've got a much closer working relationship with the team, whether they want it or not. Um, <laughs> the, 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 kind of this time around, and that's been really nice because you know I, I would only get up to Edge Hill maybe yeah, three or four times a year for kind of key meetings, design briefing, and that kind of thing. Now we're meeting regularly, at least weekly, and then sometimes a little bit more often with individual team members, depending on what the the projects are doing. So that has been absolutely great. Um, I my preferred way of working is always collaborating i've always written in partnership with people um in there and i i that cut and thrust of kind of of ideas in there is something that you miss when you're a, you know i'm, I'm sitting here doing it on, on my own so i, I absolutely I've, I've loved that um but i think as the downside really is just that play testing part yeah. of the gaming experience is exchanging those war stories mm -hmm. 10 years on. do you remember that time when you killed that dwarf which my friends still remind me of my first game of D, &D when i was 11 so mm -hmm. you know it's missing it's those those kind of stories that you bet and and that kind of that fun that you have kind of over the tabletop in there which it's hard we we haven't been able to to do that which is which is a shame yeah um but as Peter said, the upsides. I, I would continue to work this way on future projects, regardless of where the lockdown goes, just because you get that kind of immediacy and 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 being able to actually kind of see and work with the team, which is which I really enjoy. Well, one of the big things that Crooked Dice does, besides put out one of my favorite games, and something that we have not mentioned at all, and that is completely my fault, are the models. I mean, Crooked Dice Studios puts out models. Uh, the last time you were on, I believe you mentioned that you guys are up to something like 900 different models that you make, something like that. And, yeah, so the, right and the range is always expanding. Um, you have just come out with some absolutely fantastic uh, villain slash uh, boss layer slash um, secret base uh, terrain that you know is everything I ever wanted as a kid. Um, you literally have the the table with the volcano base in miniature on it. You have a you have a globe that with you know the the missile lock. On, I mean, you have the the computers with the the rotary tape uh, memory on it. You have computer banks uh, the, the the chairs for the evil boss to sit on. You have the the shark tank uh, with the little 
bridge that goes across that falls in. Everything I've ever wanted to populate a boss layer, you have now put out, you bad man, and now I'm going to have to buy them all. But the miniatures that interact on that scenery are outstanding. And having just painted uh, one of your scuba divers literally two nights ago, let me say, my God, the detail is amazing. You've been slowly dripping out fantasy models for quite some time and teasing new ones. Clearly, you don't want to just flood the market at once and that you wanted to build up a catalog before this came out. Um, Now that 7TV Fantasy is absolutely coming out in five months, four months, are you stepping that up or are you happy with the slow rollout that you've been doing so far? Yeah, we certainly wanted to just kind of add some fancy stuff to to the collection. The great thing about fantasy is that, you know, everyone has probably played a fantasy game and, Mm -hmm. and, and knows the genre and knows what it is. But of course, the other side of that is that it's, it's a hugely saturated market. You know, it it, it's when most people start and Crooked Dice has gen, generally done stuff that you can't get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it was a bit of a challenge with that. I was lucky enough to uh, acquire some of the back catalogue from Otherworld miniatures mm-hmm. as they were selling off uh, their goblins and ogres uh, and, and some of their monsters. And I just love all of those John Pickford sculpts and, and, and wanted to, you know, I wanted to give those a new home. Oh yeah. Um, so that kind of happened anyway. Uh, but we've been adding some, some other archetypes as we've been going along and we'll continue to do that. We've got another, looking behind me, we've got another at least sort of eight adventurer types um, that are going to come out, which are fairly generic, but have all been sculpted by um, uh, Mark Evans, mm-hmm. uh, who's done a lovely job with the, with the town guard and stuff. He has. Um, that we've released in, in recent months. We've got a few more of those. We've got a what we call a psionic lasher, so a tentacle-faced um, squid wizard. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's done some of those, uh, and uh, a good kind of prisoner. Uh, we tr- I've tried to have do stuff that have that kind of links into some of the encounters or other cards, so that you can kind of have those on the tabletop. Um, what isn't the box has got is packed with loads and loads of extra stuff. So you've got an extra book. Uh, six spell books in their 230 cards brand new mm. mdf full color templates what it doesn't have uh, is a MacGuffin, which is our little we kind of used to include just one little scenic item mm-hmm. but what we have done to offset that is we've got all of the MacGuffins in the box have now got a sculpted um figure that you can get so that will be coming out oh, fantastic there's 20 of those uh, and there's also six generic objective tokens which have all got a number on the bottom of them mm-hmm. so they will correspond to the encounter tables um or, or or whatever so um there's other accessory bits that we've got coming up and yeah there's a few more there's a few more models and we'll be also doing some specific stuff for the feature packs as well so we can theme things quite nicely around uh, around those now we've always seen the large template small template flame template that's in seven tv boxes but there's some new templates this time around. Uh, we have, uh, I believe it's a uh, almost a, a semi-sphere, a semicircle. Is that right? Um, something that latches, hey, there you go, latches onto the, the front of a base. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of the new uh, template types and how that they're going to be used on the tabletop. Uh, do those link to, spe- um, to character profiles, to spells, both, neither? 
uh, to, to all of those things. In the past, I found some joy in trying to get all of our templates into a single place. There's a challenge that I quite like about that. So we've normally had kind of one clear yeah. acrylic kind of token. Um, but quickly discovered with fantasy that it, it really needs a broader range of templates, particularly when we're doing uh, a variety of spells and you've got creatures, you know, that, that breathe fire and, and, and spit uh, various things. Really? So we've expanded those out into, they're actually four color MDF tokens um, now. And we've got the classic blast template uh, at the kind of the large five inch one in there. That's got a hole in the middle so you can kind of center it over your, your model. Uh, the smaller three inch one that we've had mm -hmm. in the past, uh, as you say, there's a semicircular barrier template. So that's for kind of magical shields and, and, and various things in there. Uh, the teardrop template has got a little bit, there was a kind of a cone one in the past and we've made that a little bit bigger and longer. So yeah, I that's was gonna say that's different, features. absolutely. Uh, and there's also a beam template now mm -hmm. as well, which has got, a, a, it's got a kind of a lightning bolt fashioned on it. But all of those just allow a huge amount more kind of technical aspects and variety to either weapon attacks um, or spell attacks um, in there. And you can have a lot more fun and flexibility when you're writing the kind of the outcomes for, for effects just by using those. Um, you can affect you know, a wider range of models or you know, any model touched by that has an effect. So it allows us quite a lot more variety um, to, to, to some of the game outcomes, which has been quite fun to write. Well, let's get back to our, our dear student friends. Uh, Matthew, Sarah, let's talk a little bit about this process for you. I mean, this has been quite the ordeal for you guys, as in quite a lot of effort you've put in. Um, what are some of the things that you're going to take from this? Uh, Sarah, that you've been doing this slightly longer, um, as in actually almost two years now, um, what do you? What have you taken from this experience that you can use later, or what's been maybe your favorite takeaway from this experience? Um, well, I think uh, either Peter or Carl brought this up earlier, but it definitely gives you a couple of good bullet points to put on your CV. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the experience of being in um, like a professional meeting is definitely valuable. Um, I want to go into the uh, editing industry with fiction books in the future. So it's really good on that front. It's great to actually be able to have your name on a product when you're only, you know, barely out of your teens. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that is really practical, useful experience for you, given what you hope to do with your life, right? Yeah, definitely. Nice. Uh, Matthew, how about you? Well, um, similar points to Sarah, really. Uh, it gives us a reason to... Um, basically update our CV and see what would work in a kind of more professional environment. Mm. Uh, it's interesting um, collaborating on a more professional uh, products and just bouncing off ideas off of, of, of uh, other people. Basically, um, just getting experience that you, you'd really need for the, for the industry, basically. Nice. And are you also looking into getting into maybe the editing industry when you graduate? I know you're on your postgraduate at this point. Uh, yeah, um, I I'm not got a uh, I'm not not got a solid plan at the minute, but I'm kind of thinking of hopefully um, getting something published. Maybe um, nice. I'm kind of a little bit more focused on script writing at the minute. Mm -hmm. um, 
specifically for like graphic novels and stuff. Brilliant. But uh, it's, it's definitely opened up some options uh, towards the more creative writing gaming industry, I guess. Yeah. Also, I mean, even I mean, if you are writing a script, you're going to have to collaborate with anyone who are then who is then going to create said thing um, that you're writing the script for, be it a graphic novel, be it a television show, exactly. be it you know a video game, whatever. Um, so again, being in those production meetings would give you lots of valuable experience. Oh, that's Definitely. great. Peter, I got to, again, take my hat off to you. As a primary school teacher, my students, I'm, I'm always blown away with the accomplishments of my students, especially in the era of COVID. But to speak to some of your students that you've been working closely with on this project, I mean, you have really gone above and beyond and given them everything that they need to go out in the world. It, it's fantastic. Uh, you have to be happy with that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I'm most impressed by the team's ability to respond to really unpredictable circumstances. Mm. They've been brilliant, not only in their creative work uh, and their marketing work, but they've been brilliant in adapting as well. And I would be happy to work with any of them, again, in a professional context by by no means at all. They're, they're, they've been phenomenal. Um, but I guess most of the, the reason most of us become teachers is we want to try and make a little bit of a difference to people. And, and this, is, this has been the next best thing, I think, to, to sort of teaching literature, creative writing, film studies, and, and all the kinds of things I've done in my career. This has been one of the most rewarding in terms of just being able to notice how people change in a different context, we see them change academically all the time and intellectually, mm -hmm. but to change creatively and broaden their creative possibilities and their creative talents has just been really rewarding, as well as just working with a, a fabulous bunch of people. You know, it's been a real privilege. Again, I mean, I was really lucky with the Pulp team, and I've been really lucky with the, the fantasy team as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's an honor and a privilege. It's been great. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I guess none of this would have happened without you or without Carl. Carl, I mean, it takes a special kind of game company owner slash game designer slash, I mean, you, you wear a million hats at Crooked Dice. In order to say yes to, uh, to Peter's request, and then, I mean, it's one thing to say yes, and then another thing, like Peter said, to actually get the ball rolling and to, to make this work. I'm sure for you, it's, it's been a lot of long hours as well, but you have to be happy with the end result. Oh, absolutely. Uh, weirdly, I'd, I'd never I'd never really questioned that initial decision. That was the easiest part to go, yeah, that sounds great. That will have a lot of fun kind of uh, mm -hmm. doing that. I don't know whether that's naive or or, or, or inspired. I, I think it's probably the, the, the former, um, but it's been an absolute joy both projects in there just to you know see the team kind of embrace the idea and embrace the game and be able to maybe you know experience something that they they wouldn't have come across um before giving them the opportunities to maybe get something onto their cv that can help them yeah. get their kind of their first role or, or foot in the door um in in any job the, these days is is you know the one of the main reasons for for doing it but to have a you know a fantastic product at the end of that as well is a is a bonus as well exactly. and it's been I, I completely agree with peter it's just been a joy watching people 
grow over the you know the period of, of the project um really whether that's just in confidence confidence and enthusiasm or and a kind of a technical level we've discovered wonderful wonderful people and wonderful talents in there um right the way through and and you know one of the people from pulp i work with as an illustrator now another one's turned out to be a fabulous painter miniature painter mm -hmm. and now works professionally for a for a, a miniature painting company um i've worked with with I would definitely work again with some of the team members in there and we're hoping that we can develop a kind of an ongoing freelancing role for, for some of the team members as well, if they're, really? they're interested. Um, and, you know, they know the system, they're great and talented people. Let's see if we can kind of continue to build on that uh, for the future. Really. So hopefully this is just the start of a, of a, uh, of a wonderful relationship as, as someone once said. That's right. That's right. Well, Carl, as as a fan of Seven TV and as a as a fan of yourself and the efforts that you put forward, it it does take a special person to to say yes to that arrangement and then to 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 work and to make it work. Um, and I think that it's that can do. Let's have a go. Um, as you were jokingly call it uh, naive, I think it's more. Um, a, a twinkle in your eye. Uh, it's almost like you've got the Santa Claus thing going on and you just have a, I'm going to make this work and amazing things are going to happen. And if you look at anything that Crooked Dice does, um, be it 7TV, be it the beautiful models, be it all of the, the fantastic expansions that you've given us as fans to play with, um, I can just see a lot of yes and not a lot of no in there. I think it just speaks volumes about you as a person and uh, I really do... Uh, I appreciate it as a fan. So I think on that note, uh, it is probably time to say goodnight. Guys, I have to say thank you so much for coming on. As a fan, it is, uh, it is fantastic to actually get to peer behind the curtain and uh, talk about 7TV Fantasy. Uh, and I'm really excited about it coming out later this year. And I know we're going to have some of you guys back on, if not all of you, uh, to talk about it in depth and to get into the... Oh, all of the, the, the gritty details uh, and how it, how it works on the tabletop and all the great narrative goodies. Uh, but until then, I have to say thank you for making the time because uh, it is really early where you are. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I, I know it has been a hot minute since I've recorded anything uh, recently. Uh, I've only just finished burning through all of the episodes that I recorded prior to having surgery on my mouth a month ago. Uh, so if I'm a little all over the place today, it's because it's been a while. Um, but I do have to say for all the people who have written me brilliant uh, messages over the, you know, New Year's messages, um, holiday messages. As I said, I, it's been a while. Um, and or get well messages. I have to say thank you so much. Uh, and to all the people that have written in with great ideas for future episodes of this, the Warlord cast, uh, and Beyond the First Marker, if you have any suggestions for the show or you just want to say hi, please find Cast Dice on Facebook. And now... And I cringe saying this because I'm old and I'm just learning these things. Instagram. Um, please message Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. And if you message that page, you will find me. My name is Brad. Hi. And I am the only person who answers that. So you're guaranteed response. I guess that just leaves us with what our old buddy Casey always says. When you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope your dice roll hot.
I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, and much more than that, we hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. Another day. Right